On this week's episode of the Shut Up and Build Bikes podcast, I share my interview with Jeff Tiedekin of Monkey Likes Shiny in Richmond, California. Each week on the Shut Up and Build Bikes podcast, I get on the phone for about an hour with somebody in the bike frame building world. And I really like to talk about the person's story, how they got where they are now. I like to talk about process and technique. I like to talk about ideas and why we value the things that we do and that we would spend the amount of time on this detail or that detail, or we would say that's silly. Maybe you shouldn't do that (laughs) or whatever. Uh, I think those things are, are interesting to get out. And so this week, my guest is Jeff Tiedekin. Uh, he has like a, he has like a machine shop fab shop in his living room in Richmond, California. Uh, and he does like aerospace and medical parts and all different sorts of prototype stuff and, uh, and just different wacky and whimsical things that he makes, uh, in that little space. Uh, in addition to a whole bunch of other stuff that he does, I've been friends with him a long time. He's made some really crazy concept bikes in the past and, uh, some like cargo bikes and different things. And, uh, when he was younger and he was, you know, a teenager living near Minneapolis, Minnesota, he was friends with Eric Norin. And so, uh, you know, that I think as a young person, that was, uh, some of where he learned, uh, welding and fabrication, uh, you know, part, part of the story for him. And so anyway, he's always had his hand in the sort of custom bike world. And I think a lot of my listeners would recognize Jeff, but not everybody. So if you're not aware of his work and who he is, you should get to know him. Jeff has been incredibly helpful to me over the years and given me really good advice about, uh, you know, learning about stuff. Um, I, I guess part of why I wanted to have him on the show as a guest is that I think sometimes the frame building world can feel a little bit insular and like a lot of frame building is sort of drawing inspiration from other frame builders who are doing almost exactly the same thing. And so that's cool because you get more of a defined community and there's like a a defined culture. You could build a bike any of a number of thousands of ways, but like when there's more of a homogenized culture, um, it, there's positives to that, but I think it's also valuable to step back and realize that there's like a million ways to fabricate things and there's a million places to draw influence from. And so uh, when I think about part of what I get from being friends with Jeff and, and following him and seeing what he does is this greater perspective about how to fabricate the way that I learned to fabricate bikes was, you know, very precise. Uh, you know, maybe you'd use hacksaws and hand files and you would very slowly and carefully sneak up on your, your tube fits for, for brazing or welding, or you'd use a milling machine and you get these perfect miters. And when I talk to Jeff about it, he says, Oh no, you can get that done with an angle grinder. No time, you know, and when you practice with those methods, you can get pretty good. And, uh, it's, it's that sort of perspective about everything that I, I get when I talk to him, uh, because he's not living in this smaller bubble or something. I don't know. I'm not trying to talk down on the frame building world, but, uh, anyhow, uh, he's super interesting and fun guy, incredibly talented. And so I had to get him on the show, uh, to, to, to tell the tales of Jeff, uh, where we cut into the interview. It's just sort of explaining the backstory, uh, uh, as a younger person, knowing Eric Norin of Peacock Groove and, um, you know, sort of finding a a start with metalwork programs in high school and, and that sort of thing. Yeah. So the whole background there is kind of, uh, Basically, I'm from Minnesota, uh, and I have an older brother who's 10 years older than me. Uh, he basically was going to college at University of Minnesota, Minneapolis, and 
he got a job at a company called Quality. It wasn't very <laughs> big company at the time. And uh, one of the guys that worked there was Eric. So basically at that point, uh, you know, they, they became buddies and my brother's a mechanical engineer and Eric's a really good fabricator. So he was able to kind of help my brother out through the years building stuff. And then I crossed paths, you know, when I got to hang out with my brother. So we lived outside of Minneapolis. So I didn't get to see him all the time, but over the, over the years of my brother going to school and, and everything like Eric was just, uh, kind of starting his own thing. So he had been a welder at Kroll, uh, Kroll frame building in, in Minneapolis. And that was kind of where he started and got a lot of his kind of frame building expertise, you know, and that's like, you know, that, that was just production style, you know, steel frames. Uh, he got really good at it. And, but, you know, I think Kroll went out of business and then he, uh, it, this is Eric, uh, he left Kroll to go to uh, Quality Bicycle. And at, at that time, like Quality was probably, I don't know, probably like 100, maybe like 100 people, something like that. So still mm-hmm. pretty small. It's crazy now because it's like well over 700 people and multiple locations. And there's just like the empire that Quality has built is so amazing. Yeah. And, and, to, and to see also some of the people that like, it, you know, that I've known, you know, when I was young, that are now like heading up quality, uh, that are still around. It kind of, it shows you how good of a company that was. So my brother worked at quality for quite a few years with Eric and Eric was kind of starting off doing Peacock Groove, getting that going. And so, yeah, like I, I was around here and there and, and you know, seeing Eric work is pretty inspiring. He's really good at doing work. He's got a lot of stories. So when he's working, uh, He's really inspiring stories. He's got a lot. <laughs> and so <laughs> we cut to the chase and we, uh, we just try to get, <laughs> try to learn as much stuff as I could from him, uh, and my brother. I mean, between those two guys, like they're some of the, you know, some of the people that have kind of shaped who I am now and kind of where I've, you know, where I like started off and how I started off, you know, those two guys made a big impact. There's many more, but those two are kind of two that like, you know, made a lot of the difference in the early days. Yeah. Did, uh, did Eric teach you TIG welding or did you, did you have a chance to learn that somewhere earlier? A little bit. I mean, also one of the neat parts about Minnesota is, you know, Minnesota is, has got a lot of really, really clever people in it. And like all, you know, the whole United States is amazing, but Minnesota is kind of special on its own and a lot of it is it's got a lot of subsidized uh you know uh, shop programs from companies like 3M uh who are really pushing to kind of help out shops because they know that you know there is a chance that like you know that there's going to be kids that aren't going to excel in you know certain things in the academia world but are going to really love shop and so if you can help them and you can give them the tools to to like find that thing that they truly love, then like you have a high likelihood that they, they'll, you know, leave high school and they might not go to college or they might go to community college for two years, but they, they'll enter that job force and they'll already be, you know, light years ahead of, you know, everyone else. And the great part about that is like, they'll be, you know, they'll, they'll actually be affordable 
as far as like employment goes. And so, uh, one of the great parts about my high school was the fact that we had like in-house everything. We had CNC, we had Bridgeport Mills, we had lathes. We actually had an in-house foundry. Uh, wow. and one of the, the crazy parts we could pour, we could pour full aluminum molds in house. Uh, and then we had a welding shop. And one of the best parts about that was, was having like an inspiring teacher, uh, this guy, Mr. Stuckey, he was, you know, he was basically seeing how excited I was about it. And he was the guy that always buying me filler rods and <laughs> everything I needed to make sure. I don't, I don't know if that was coming out of the school budget or his pocketbook, but either way, I had enough filler rod and fresh tanks of argon and I, it, I just made a lot of garbage for a long time. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was awesome. Like, and I mean, I still make a lot of garbage, but it's like the, to like have that positive reinforcement and, yeah. you know, then being able to check, check in with people like Eric and my brother and others and kind of learn little tidbits as we go along. Like, you know, you accelerate at this rate that it, it's unbelievable. And it's, it's kind of unfortunate that a lot of schools right now don't have that because I see how it shaped me and where I am and, you know, how much money I make now because of where I was started, you know, like mm-hmm. in that early kind of point. So it it's kind of a, it's like, oh man, like, if only people could see this like with a little bit clearer light, I feel like it's, it would make so much more sense. But shop programs are dying every day and it's crazy as much as we say that we need them. Like they still seem to fade away. Yeah. So, yeah, I wish I had a better experience with that. And I think part of it was my own attitude. Like I didn't think that I fit in or something. And it's so obvious to me now that that's like the stuff I'm the best at, but I guess I resented that about myself or something when I was younger. It's like, no, that's not who I am. I wanted to be a, I wanted to be a musician or something. So, um, what were some of the first bikes that you made? Like, I, I don't, I haven't seen that many things that you've built in terms of bike frames, but I know you made some really weird concept bikes in the last like eight years. Uh, what was the first bike mm-hmm. that you ever built? I don't, I mean, the, the bikes over the years have all been kind of goofy. I mean, they don't really fit the norm and there I've only taken one order for an actual like classic traditional bike and that guy that placed the order that was uh 10 or 12 years ago i still have his hundred dollar deposit hit that's jeff thrasher uh <laughs> and i'm I, my goal is to beat uh richard satch uh sacks like uh what is his like uh what he's Lead got time. like a 14 year whatever uh-huh. waiting time so my goal was to become the most desired bike builder by taking a deposit (laughs) right so if no one can get a bike and my first customer (laughs) is my (laughs) only customer jeff thrasher i mean he's asked for his deposit back but i mean i don't know (laughs) it's a hundred dollars i'll i'll paypal you jeff don't worry (laughs) but yeah it's uh but yeah i mean over is that over the years is that jeff from all city or i don't know who that is uh, Jeff Thrasher, he lives in LA. Um, he's, okay, never mind. he's quite big in the, yeah, he's, he, he actually has a bunch of different things he does as well. But, um, but yeah, it's, uh, he's super into the bike scene and, uh, yeah, he's, he's a great dude. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but yeah, I, I think thankful to my customer. 
<laughs> so, but, so uh, tell us about some of the bikes that you did make because i've seen uh you sure. made one that was like a like a gravity bike where just about every tube in the frame uh i forget maybe i'm mixing up the two frames but um yeah, I don't know. There was one of them where it, like the hubs were only supported on one side each, and it was like a downhill, uh, yeah. very fast one. And then the other one was also sort of in the same vein, but it was just like a massive chain ring. You actually had a drive train on it. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I've built a lot of a lot of weird bikes. Uh, just mostly they're kind of like design studies. I'm I don't build them for anyone. I build them solely for myself. If someone wanted to buy that. Um, I would probably sell it, but it's, it's more of like a design study. It's, it's mostly to make sure that like I'm staying sharp and that I'm kind of, I don't know, it's like painting a picture, right? Like I love to paint. (laughs) So that's kind of the, the idea with it. And, uh, and, and they're great. Like I still have them too. Uh, but one of them is the gravity bike. So kind of the idea was originally I was kind of building this super kind of odd kind of pencil sketch of something that kind of has all these flowy lines. And I was like, if you kind of crossed a bunch of different things, like a Schwinn Stingray and you combined like a Suzuki Jixer, you know, street bike, like, and you combined all these little things here and there, like, what would you get? And you would get this kind of futuristic, super fast looking, really aggressive. So, uh, kind of taking that, then I, I looked at the geometry and I kind of drew my axle points and my rider position. And then actually one of the things I'll do a lot of times is I'll, I'll kind of mimic, I'll make like just a quick kind of uh, a mock-up. So I'll put the wheels against a white wall. I'll find something I can get the seat height really close to. Uh, and then I'll, I'll kind of get in the position and then what I'll do is I'll go from that and then I'll print out a picture of myself and then I'll hand sketch. And a lot of times it's uh, building these bikes, they're, they're concepts, right? But they're, you know, you want a bike to look as fast, like while you're riding it as it is standing still. So it's, it's kind of just more of a, a, a fun project really to kind yeah. of see. And, and, and that's kind of like a lot of the bikes that I've built, they've all been kind of tests of, of how much can you make a bike kind of different without losing a lot of its traditional styles and, you know, uh, things that like people commonly connect with the bike industry. Cause that's one of the things like bike industry is a, an interesting one. It doesn't, uh, it, it, it's a very perfected thing, right? And that we've really figured out every little detail of it and it works really well. So it's, it's hard to sometimes go like astray and try to tell people that you've created something better <laughs> so <laughs> you know and and it's like it's not even worth trying that too because like the retaliation you'll get is <laughs> not <laughs> worth it so but a lot of it is um sometimes it's a challenge to see what people think and like not everyone's gonna love it right like but mm-hmm. um that was kind of one of the challenges was how how crazy of a bike can you make something look still be rideable and like get people to kind of you know connect with it and so that one of those early bikes was the gravity bike uh then i built like a high speed bike and that project i i've i've come and gone on it and i feel like it's kind of a lot of these projects also are kind of testaments to like uh, i guess the best way to use them as an example is like they're like journals so some of the projects i do are like journals. So as I learn new skills in other parts of my 
career, I like to go back and build stuff on them. So it's like painting over a picture sometimes mm-hmm. uh, that you've already drawn. But it's, yeah, it's I, because I don't really have a customer that like, I just enjoy building. So Yeah. I remember on one of those bikes, you had a fork crown that was, you had 3D modeled it, I think at Fusion 360, and then you 3D machined it uh, on a CNC mill. And uh, and you, I think you were saying you whipped that out in like a couple hours or something. Uh, yeah. You know, from from like sketch to, to finished part or something, which you know for you yeah. with your machining background is is simpler, of course, than most frame builders. But it's cool because uh, you made something that I've never seen. I don't think I've seen any other frame builders get CNC machined or themselves CNC machine a fork crown. And you did the whole project in a matter of hours, and it's cool looking too. It's like it's pretty sharp. Did you use any <laughs> it, of the uh, like yeah. FEA or any of that stuff that's built into the CAD? Uh, so basically, uh, for my kind of background, I my background is really a welder. Like I'll always be a welder. That's my background. But a lot of times, like I was waiting for parts to be machined, and so I became a machinist. And then as I became a machinist, I like learned more and more, and then this kind of CAD cam thing came in and, uh, and I just happened to be kind of in the right place at the right time. And, uh, one of the, one of the stories there is, uh, that the CEO of Autodesk, Carl Bass, uh, reached out to me and we've been friends since then. Like some of the, he's one of my best friends actually. And, uh, and it's cool because like, he was like, Oh, I want to do an example part of how we can use the new, like kind of molding software. And so, it's very similar to working with clay. Uh, and so the idea basically is like, and it fusion now has it, it was an early beta test when I did it. But Mm -hmm. the idea was basically you kind of hand drag something around kind of similar to like moving clay. And so you wanted to see like what I could create, uh, that I could actually make into a functional thing and machine and then kind of show people. And so one of those examples was, uh, this fork crown, and, you know, it's, it's really interesting. If you look at a fork crown, uh, it's, it's kind of this weird, uh, symmetrical thing that if you divide it up into quadrants into four, then you will get this like, uh, way you can sculpt one side and it replicates all three. Uh, and so it was kind of a, a good test to like, uh, learn how we could make something like this. And then, so I made this fork crown and it, they told me like two days before, they wanted to give this presentation in Las Vegas that they wanted this fork crown done. And so like basically like nights before, uh, and it, it was awesome because Spencer, uh, um, our friend Spencer, who also shoots a lot of, uh, photos for a bunch of different online blogs happened to be around. So he was able to grab like a ton of awesome shots of basically building this whole entire bike. So we built the frame and a fork and all the other stuff for, uh, the show and shipped it out there. It was, it was pretty dumb. Uh, it was definitely like, like working like around the clock to build s- something like that. <laughs> it was just a bad idea. It's so easy to say yes. It's so hard to say no. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's because I think you're getting so, asked to do interesting things, you know? Yeah. I mean, every year for Autodesk University, I've been asked to do something that's generally, there's a reason, uh, like no one wants to do it. (laughs) (laughs) 
like this year, like uh, this last year, it was uh, making the whole front end of an F1 Mercedes Benz car y- using the generative software uh, that Autodesk has created. It, it used yeah. to be Dreamweaver. Uh, now it's uh, the generative software. And so basically they created this like skeleton looking front end from a uh, Mercedes Benz F1 car. And then they were like, let's build it. And I was like, oh, boy, this would be cool. And they're like, OK, perfect opportunity. It's all yours. <laughs> <laughs> I was like totally screwed. And like four days before it, I'm like literally building this thing from scratch. Wow. Luckily, it didn't have to go on any track or anything because it definitely would have held up on any track. That's for sure. <laughs> wow. Yeah. It was a, no bearings would fit that. Uh-huh. <laughs> it was a rush job. That's that's insane. Yeah, I, I don't. Uh, occasionally, people ask me to do random odd jobs, and I usually just say no because I got my own projects that I have plenty of plenty of ideas and ambitions for. I haven't gotten to yet, but I'm not in that world getting asked to make things that are actually super duper interesting like that. So that might be a little bit different. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's that's one of the hardest parts too. I've I've noticed over the years, it's like the more tools knowledge experience and equipment that i like have acquired the more like my reputation in a certain world has gotten bigger uh, you know and like and so one of the hard parts about it is like i i'm minnesota nice like i have a hard time saying (laughs) no sometimes and like it's one of the most difficult things like it's like oh we're building the satellite components we need your help like can you do you have any spare time and i'm thinking like well i could give up sleeping and then I could probably work on that and then I could probably jump back onto the other project and it's 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 exhausting but it's also like super fulfilling and like that's that's one of the most important things is just being fulfilled like anyone can make things but do you actually feel fulfilled at the end of the day and so it you know a lot of times if you're not feeling fulfilled are you doing the right thing so um and I don't know I I really enjoy it as much as I work like you know, I, I probably machine 12 to 16 hours and fabricate that, you know, in a day. And, and like, I don't pray six or seven days a week. It also help, helps having an awesome girlfriend that does the exact same thing and is about twice as driven as you are. So it makes it way easier to work that much. <laughs> yeah. Um. One of the things I have on the list that I want to ask you about is uh, years ago you designed and uh, produced, I believe, a U-lock or part of a U-lock, you know, that that also had a 15 millimeter hex socket built into it. So if you had a fixie and you were carrying your U-lock and you want to be able to <laughs> change your flat, but you didn't also <laughs> want to carry a 15 mil wrench, uh, yep. so you made that and, and produced those, right? Uh, what was the story with that? Uh, yeah, so the story basically was uh, I had a, a bunch of friends in L.A. and they have a kind of a bike club. It's called Trenway. Uh, there was one of my friends that was part of that, uh, this guy, Dan Berlant. He's super great dude. And basically he he came to me with this idea of, you know, hey, is there a possibility of like kind of mating these two pieces together? And he had a 15 millimeter socket and he wanted me to weld it on. I was like, no, we can do this like this is a, this is a thing. Right. And so like, basically like from then on, uh, it was just basically seeing if we could make this part and, and it worked and it was super cool. And it was definitely a test. Like it was a weird, you know, that was my, 
kind of my first entry into that world of like products and it was it was definitely it was definitely a rough one i like if i could go back now and like knowing what i know now and how to approach people and how to approach things and <laughs> I, it would be such an awesome opportunity but i think at at the end of the day i basically broke even for what it took to like make the thing right like uh dan and i got a provisional patent on it and we kind of we, i made a whole ton of them basically and it at the end of the day it was a break even i was so i was so bummed like i was like this is our get rich quick scheme and then like basically covered our losses on the provisional the lawyer fees and all the other stuff but you know what it was super cool tool um a lot of people still ask for them which is a compliment i guess but it was uh but yeah, like one of the ideas with it was basically to take a kryptonite lock that, uh, you know, that we all know, take that orange sleeve off, basically replace that orange sleeve with a slide on piece, uh, basically machined of steel. And it has a 15 millimeter hex on the end of it. And, uh, when you lock your U-lock through that tool, it has a hole inside of it, which basically makes your tool like a wrench. And so you can take your bike wheel off. And the idea was, you know, uh, there was a huge scene on the fixed gear, you know, like, you know, to run uh, standard 15 millimeter hex axles. So then, you know, there was this problem of like, well, like you still want to lock up your wheels. And so that was kind of that was kind of the premises for making this tool was figuring out how to lock up your front wheel. So you take your front wheel off and then as you lock through it, the great part about it is the lock is locked, your wheels locked to like everything's connected so yeah. it was cool i mean was definitely that, like what that would have been yeah. like 2010 or when was that it's probably like it's like 20 uh it's probably 2008 something like that 2007 nice. wired magazine did a bunch of articles about it it was super cool i mean it was it was just a different point in my life i think i was pretty loose and careless like and i wasn't really focused on business nor have i ever been nor will i ever be and so I think the problem is I've been running a nonprofit my whole life. <laughs> I've spent all my money on having fun. And so I haven't actually made any money, even if I come up with like good ideas or, you know, like I somehow <laughs> often make the mistake of <laughs> of spending all the money. So whatever. <laughs> Just living the dream, man. So yeah i guess uh it's fine what i hang the... out with all the rich guys <laughs> <laughs> um one of the things i had on the list is that uh i mean to very different degrees for sure but i mean you and i somewhat both used frame building and and bikes and being interested in bikes as younger people as a way to get into metalwork and fabrication for you you maybe would have find found it anyway if it wasn't for bikes but i know some of your projects and interests have been in bikes and for me I, I don't know that I ever would have gotten as into metalwork, except that I really thought frame building looked neat. And then I got into it and now I, I still love frame building and it has a sweet place for me in my heart, but I also love CNC machining and, and, you know, manufacturing entrepreneurship and these different things. And, um, in any way, so I feel like it's this really cool thing. It's like an entryway into all these things you can do. And, um, I don't know, I guess like w when you see the stuff that happens in the sort of frame building world, uh, or when I see it, I, I get excited about like all the places that people can take that, even if they don't 
you know, just start a frame building business and do that for, for a long time. There's so many things you can do with those skills and what you learn. I think that's exciting. Uh, how do you think that relates to, you know, the larger world of like fabrication and machine and, and stuff that you're interested in? Yeah, I, I, it's, a, it's a really interesting one because like a lot of people ask me uh, all the time and, and I think like it, there's nothing better to teach younger people how to get into metal fabrication than doing bicycle stuff really it's like it's it's an achievable it's affordable it's the engineering lessons that are learned like the repercussions of when things don't go right (laughs) are lower like you know there's there's a lot of awesome things that come with you know working on bicycles and and like i look back at some of the early photos of like both my dad and my brother and and everyone like working on bikes i mean they built they built like long travel bikes you know in the in the early nineties, like, and it's got motorcycle parts in it, you know? And it's like, you look at it now and you're like, oh, that's just like, you know, it's just a single pivot, like set up or this or that. And like, but then you, you look at like, you know, the, the evolution of it and like the linkage designs on full suspensions and, and not to mention like the, the expectation and caliber of bike building has gotten so high that like, this is, this is setting the bar. I mean, when you look at all these titanium welders out there, I mean, I could I could sit here and name people for hours that are some of the most mind-blowing welders out there. I mean, you just look at the Moots crew, like they're kicking ass. That's awesome. Like, yeah. you know, and they and and Firefly and all those guys, like the the quality that's gotten there and that's setting the bar as well. And and so one of the interesting things is like, you know, I I tell people of all ages, honestly, like there's nothing more fun and rewarding, fulfilling to like learn, uh, than starting with a bicycle. And most of that just comes down to also the tools needed. Right. So, I mean, really you could bolt together a bike. You don't need to weld it. Like you can bolt together things that, uh, they, they call it the huffy tube crush, right? That's when you squeeze the end of the tube (laughs) and the vice. Yeah. This might be a new tool that you can work on. Oh right? yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like a soft jaws for your vice, and then it's got a punched hole in the end of it too, right? So you can uh-huh. <laughs> squeeze the tube and punch the hole, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> but yeah. So what? Like, I don't know. That's that's one thing that I like. I I really advocate for, and I wish school programs kind of seen that, like, um, because when you think about where aviation has come from you realize that it's like a kind of a stick frame fabric covering. And that's really just the exact same as a bicycle without the fabric covering, you know, Wright brothers did both. There's a reason there like that kind of work together. And so when you look at, you know, landing gear on all these planes and stuff like that, you realize that a lot of the things that also you learn building bikes is the same. And so for, for a kid getting into bike building or hanging out with his dad in the garage building it, like I look at what my dad worked with me doing and I realized that like what he kind of showed me building all these weird bikes like back in the nineties and what my brother worked on with him and by, and, and, and just us in general, it's all the exact same stuff. It's just the scale factor is different. Right. So, you know, now I'm working on like, a nuclear reactor before this I was working on putting stuff into space like it's still TIG welding it's still beautiful TIG work it's machining it's you know it's as sad as it is like there's a lot of satellites that have 
have contacted angle grinders at some point <laughs> in their life, you know? Like, you just can't get away from, like, a lot of the work that's basically, like, all the same, right? And so you think about what you can do in your home garage with such simple things. And so teaching kids that is such an awesome thing. Like, you got, you know, 250 bucks in a cheap MIG welder at, at Home Depot. You got, you know, some gloves, some gear. You got a Makita angle grinder. You got a drill. I mean, you're, you're, you'd be lucky if you break 750, you know, 500 to 700 with everything, right? And so, like, then the bikes are dime a dozen. I mean, you can find stuff everywhere. And so, whether it's a freak bike or whether it's a trailer or whether it's like, you know, some art thing, like, all this stuff is the same. Like, you learn about alignment. You learn about, like, you know, how things work, like the mechanized part of it. You learn about, what's a good weld, what's a bad weld, right? And mm-hmm. so it's it's such a great tool that, like, I mean, even if our school programs are lacking, like, in certain aspects, I think it comes down to, like, you know, a lot of these programs to kind of pick up the slack and parents to pick up the slack. Like, we need to roll up the sleeves and get back out there and, you know, show our kids a different perspective a lot of times than what they're going to be able to be exposed to in school. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I love that. I think um, it's funny when I got started with all the bike frame building stuff, I was like, man, these tools and stuff are so expensive. And if you want to do anything in a, like a metal fabrication shop or a machine shop, it gets radically more expensive so quickly. You know, you can buy, even if you wanted to have a nicely equipped frame building shop, it's really not that expensive. You know, these old milling machines you can buy for a couple hundred bucks sometimes. And uh, yep. You know, yeah, welding machine, uh, even a really nice one is like a couple grand. And you compare that to the the kind of uh, equipment and infrastructure and shop space and stuff you need to do a big project. It's um, it's it's yeah, it's massively more accessible. And then, yeah, like you were saying with with like the welding crew at Moots or something, it's like you can take it as far as you want to uh, and beyond. Uh, you know, you don't need yeah. to, you don't need to stick only within bikes, but you can certainly uh, you can practice a lot for a long time. I, I think about, I like, you know, I started building all these bikes and it was funny because I was like 16 and my parents were asking like, what are you going to do? Are you going to go to college? And I was just like, I don't know. And then like, I got this harebrained idea one day that like, as soon as I turned 18, I was going to leave and drive to Steamboat Springs and get a job at Moots. Like, I just assumed <laughs> that they were going to hire me. <laughs> there was no doubt. It was like, I'll just weld for them and then they'll hire me. But like, that's what I had planned. Like, you know, my life changed a lot from basically 17 to 18, like, you know, building motorcycles and that whole madness of, uh, of my life. But, but one of the interesting things was like that, that's, I got so inspired and so excited about welding and, you know, like, that a lot of that came down to my teachers, you know, that the, the inspiring crew that basically got me so excited about it. I, I was ready to weld eight hours a day, yeah. seven days a week, you know, like, and that's awesome. Like I was so amped up. Yeah. Yeah. I need some of that back in my life again. I don't weld that much anymore because I just don't have the work for it. <laughs> and because in my tiny shop in order to 
fit my gigantic haws I had to get rid of and compartmentalize all the stuff I had. So it's just, it'd be such a chore. Like I, I had, I had a, I had like a sheet metal fabricated metal set of drawers and it broke. And so I had to like get the TIG welder out to fix it like a month or two ago. <laughs> took, and it you, was, took you an hour. Yeah. It took you an hour to get it ready. <laughs> it was miserable. Not to mention the surfaces were like galvanized and painted, but <laughs> that was, gives you a good, quick, cheap buzz, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you need that every so often. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> um we t- when i was visiting you in california uh, around nabs time last year i remember you were saying something about um i don't know if it was yeti specifically you were talking about this different era of like building uh building bikes that you thought was more exciting and you know like there have been uh, you have a schwinn from what is it like a 1938 or something yep yeah, and so like there there were there were eras historically where bicycles were really like pushing pushing the boundaries and you know new techniques totally. and then there's areas where it maybe feels a little less exciting or something like what really uh what gets you excited about about different ideas and bikes and different eras and methods and stuff. Yeah. A lot of you know I, I really study history a lot when it comes to manufacturing in general, right? So I look at I look at it. I mean, it's what I love. I do it 24 hours a day like I, even in my sleep i run a haas which is actually kind of scary because <laughs> because it's just standard operation jobs so <laughs> but uh but yeah like one of the interesting things about studying kind of manufacturing is looking at eras where there was a lot of cross-pollination of of other industries right and so when you notice those spikes in kind of innovation you realize kind of where like where and what the reasons were and so one of the interesting things that I like, I, I love studying that, those specific, like into detail. And one of those was like 1937, 38, you know, Chicago. Uh, one of the things that they were doing was chromoly tube came out and that was a big deal, right? So it was the first time that they could actually create a high quality, you know, seamless tube that could basically be you know built into bicycles and landing gear and all this other stuff and that was a huge point they were also having to figure out how to weld it like what worked what didn't right and so one of the interesting things about you know that era was all the you know early paramounts uh, that were being built in chicago and one of the special bikes i have that i love to ride which i know the whole schwinn crew hates that, I, that I, lo- I love to ride it is I have like one of the first serial numbers of the Schwinn Superior and it's it's amazing like the bike has just got so much weird energy in it and like I, I love it and so it's one of the first years of chromoly tube you know used in a production style bike and yeah all fillet braised just a great bike it's all hand pinstriped and the paint it's great because you can park it in San Francisco and it's, and its value is probably like collector wise, maybe like 10 grand, but it looks so hammered. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you can, you can chain it up in front of any store and no one's going to take it. <laughs> so yeah, it's like, it's such a, it's such a unique bike to ride, but that was one of the like early points when I, when I really like was intrigued by it. It was the, was that era Schwinn. And then another era Schwinn that was kind of special was, uh, was the electroforging era, which basically was when they were building a whole entire bike, uh, using sheet metal. And so 
it's a lot of the era that we all know about, right? We all know about the varsity and the collegiate and like, you know, the suburban and the Hollywoods, like all those like curvy tubed bikes. But, you know, a lot of people don't understand how revolutionary that was in the manufacturing world. Uh, Basically what they did was they brought in a sheet of uh, coil steel on a rail car. They would uh, have uh, progressive die stamping, which is similar to what they use in Detroit for making automotive car parts, mm-hmm. stamp out these sheet metal flat blanks, and then they would put them into these different processes where they would shape them into different shapes. So one of them that's very unique is uh, the head tube. The head tube basically looks like the letter K, yeah. uh, and then they would bend it and roll it around, and then you would have a little bit of the top tube and a little bit of the down tube and then the full head tube was built in. And then they would build all these parts and they'd put them in this machine that kind of s- is similar looking to like a, what we think of a, as like a frame fixture, uh, but like, but with hydraulic rams all over it and huge copper bus bars all over it. And what they would do is they basically, uh, they would send a ton of, uh, energy through it and resistance in all those seams, which, you know, where all the sheet metal parts join. Uh, would create a ton of heat buildup and these hydraulic rams would push this bike frame together. And so the unique part about it, the best way to describe it is like how they, how, if, if you're familiar with welding a bandsaw blade together, like a, mm-hmm. on, on a, on a vertical bandsaw, they'll usually have a bandsaw blade welder. It's the exact same process. Um, but just imagine building a bike that like from start to finish a cumulative time in manufacturing is like 90 seconds you know <laughs> so like to think about building a bike like in le- in about a minute and a half every minute and a half you're able to build a bike right that's literally from start to finish right and not including paint but like you know to, so it's like you look at that and you look at like that was someone that came into that era with a bunch of knowledge from possibly something else like you know, building something for the military where they were able to bring that knowledge in and just put it, you know, to bicycles. So that's a, that was kind of an interesting one. Uh, a lot of the other, you know, eras are like kind of early nineties. You have, um, you have a lot of, uh, you're a pretty big fan of Yeti. We know that. So the early nineties are uh, a pretty interesting one. And a lot of that is like, you had a lot of people during kind of a lot of weird strikes and, layoffs in the aerospace industry uh get dumped out into the world right of of manufacturing again like they they kind of you know you're like you always feel like you're safe at a place like boeing until there's a huge layoff and then you have to realize that you and you know two thousand other you know titanium aluminum welder and all the other welders are out on the street at the same time and one of those sparks kind of came at the early 90s with a lot of companies like Yeti with like foes with uh, mountain cycle, you know, you look at all these like pretty unique era bikes where they were kind of crossing over so many different paths. They were crossing over hydroforming stamping. They were, uh, they were doing a lot of like uh, suspension design. You also had a lot of shock design coming in uh, off-road race truck guys were really bringing in a whole new mindset of how to, really do all the like preload dampening and everything and so you just see this like this cross-pollination of industries happening and the bicycle industry is just like benefiting from it and you see so much evolution so aggressively 
and and no one was really right and no one was really wrong so that was the cool part like people just tried things like and that was you know there was bikes that were built for like two years like the you know the one of the bikes that comes to mind that was really pushing the era was you know the yeti law will uh with mert law will's design and the gt lobo uh you know you have a lot of these like unique designs for uh suspension uh, that were just really really cool looking as well as functional i mean yeah so it was just like it's a cool era you had a cross with cnc and then the next era that would come later would basically be carbon fiber and to really see like the the understanding of carbon fiber really take off uh in the early 2000s and kind of build off of that and so now you see amazing carbon fiber and so it's cool you see it it usually takes a while for a lot of these you know there's there's a good time window between these sparks and a lot of it's industry stuff but but yeah, it's cool. I mean, I, I think like it, it's always coming around like every 10 or so years, 10, 20 years, there's another spark that happens. And so it's yeah. always exciting. I, I love to watch it. So, yeah. What, one of the things that I see when I go to a show like NABS or something is that the, a lot of the bikes fit into the same general sort of category of being like a diamond frame bike that's made out of metal and um and it's pretty straightforward and that makes sense like you were saying you know it's such a well-refined tool the bicycle the diamond frame it's really good we've got it mostly figured out and so like you know why would you deviate more than you had to especially when you're building for customers each customer is a consideration you don't want to make something unnecessarily like outlandish just you know, just to do that. But at the same time, uh, I feel like the whole frame building world can feel a little bit like insular and like a little bit like, um, we're, we're taking a lot of inspiration from other frame builders, but not a whole lot from maybe the rest of the fabricating world. Uh, what, what is it that you think would be really exciting if you were to go to nabs this year or something and see more of, is there anything that comes to mind? I mean, I think you're already seeing it. It's just hard sometimes cause you're not like, I, I think it's also like, I see it because I, I attend the show. Like I, I, I'm not very, like, I love hand built, uh, frames. I love the people that build hand built frames. I love the people that work in every aspect of it, whether it's like Rudy at black magic, like dude's amazing painter. I love going there just to see the, the craftsmanship. Like there's, there's something about that classic way that you can't take away that like, but on the other hand, like you see a new side of it, which is coming around, which is, you know, the people using Autodesk Fusion and, and all these other CAD CAM softwares and also having access to machining and 3D printing, right? So you're starting to see uh, a new era happen where you're seeing 3D printed componentry welded into bikes, you know, like yeah. Moots is doing it and a few others like, it's super uh, cool. and it's, it's super cool, right? And now we can create shapes that we couldn't create before, right? Like, you know, Mark only wants to machine so much dropouts with crazy curves, right? <laughs> but like some of the dropouts that like are being created now are like, they're not even able to be machined. Like it's yep. the, it's like, you know, and, and the structure that's inside of them and yep. everything else. Like, I mean, it's just, you're seeing it. It's just different. It's a different and, and 3D printing, like I'm a, pro and cons kind of guy of when it comes to it because i i truly see some of the the benefits and drawbacks with it but 
we're seeing it. It's just sometimes it's hard because it's being integrated slowly into like conventional ways, right? So, um, you know, a good example is the dropouts. Like, like if you did that seven years ago, you would you would have pe- paid more money to have those dropouts printed than you could ever sell that bike for. Right? Yeah. So like now it's become economical to a point to be able to do stuff like that. And so we're seeing it on, on a lot of scales of things. And, and it's just also, uh, one of the things about NABS is it's, it's, it is a, it's a craftsman show. Like it's truly like showing how, you know, that's why you have best welds and you have best things like, and, and it, it you can, you can really, I, I love going to see how good people are doing it. Cause it, it's inspiring to me because I, 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 I'm an aerospace welder, but I still don't think I can weld as good as a lot of those people that do it, you know? And it's like, it's inspiring for me to like set my bar a little bit higher by looking at how good people are at doing certain things. And so there, there's, you know, it, it's just hard. There's a lot of people out there doing amazing stuff and they're, they're not the people that are going to go to a bike show. So that's the other part of it. It's, it's a very unique show. It has its own unique like group and I don't, it's, yeah, I mean, I can't say anything bad about it. Like, cause it's, it's a great show. Yeah. <laughs> I like going. <laughs> yeah, no, it's so good. And it's for someone like me or anybody in this little world, it's such like a, it's, you know, it's frame building summer camp. And so you get to hang out with all these people who share your weird little interest and who spend all yep. the time thinking about it and they have the shop and they, they love bikes and they know the history of all these different things. And uh, you just don't, I don't know, for me anyway, there's never people that have that deep knowledge and interest that I see in my life, but I get to see them and hang out with them for a couple of days at the show. So, yeah, it's, I, I mean, in the end, like it, it has its like dedicated crew of people that really love it. And it's always bringing in new people and I'm glad that it gets bigger every year. And it's, it, it is a, I mean, the parties are awesome. <laughs> I mean, like The parties that always happen are like, that's the reason I go mostly. And then I go to like see everyone else and then look at everything. Like, because yeah, it's, it's just a great like kind of powwow. I mean, the, with social media and stuff, it's so hard to like, everything's out there already. So it's kind of, even the people that aren't at the show that you're, you know, really like inspired by they're on social media. And then you're like, you can already see them. So it's kind of, it's always hard sometimes to think about even going to the show. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I'm sure a lot of people that listen to this doubt every year <laughs> to go. They're like, uh, like, is it really worth it to go? Because it's like everyone already sees everything I do on mm-hmm. a daily basis, whether that's eating a sandwich or that's <laughs> drive, driving to the dentist. Like everyone knows my life already to an extent. Right. And so yeah. it's is it really pay to go to it? But I mean, in the end, it's it's just a great way to like hang out with a lot of like like minded people so that's why it's it's an awesome show yeah yeah no i feel the same and i didn't go to trade shows for a very long time and i remember when i first went it was just really you know it's rejuvenating you know you start to i don't know things get a little bit old sometimes and when you get to like actually hang out with people who share your interest is pretty fun but yeah i wanted to ask you about your tig rig and about tig welding some in general but you have a really super cool tig welder it's the Miller Aero Wave, 
it's a what it's like a circa 2000 or something like year 2000 machine and it's a hybrid between an inverter and a transformer and you wanted one for ages and then you finally snagged one uh tell (laughs) tell us about that machine yeah Yeah, i think i think the right way to start it is like i was a teenager in the 90s and i i got my first miller catalog and this thing was in there and it had like it's it said like list price twenty eight thousand starting (laughs) <laughs> and I was just like, what? Like, it's the Lamborghini, right? It's, uh-huh. it's like, it's got its own page. It's like, it, you know, it's like, why wouldn't you want this thing, right? Even if you don't need it, it's so awesome. Like, so this, this welder is, is so unique. Um, for, uh, some of the people listening probably have already know the whole story with the Airwave, but it's a pretty unique one. Uh, basically Boeing was working on a project, uh, years ago in a collaboration project with uh, NASA as well. And they were working on some space project and they, they were struggling to get this certain type of quality weld that they were trying to achieve. So they reached out to Miller to see if they could help out kind of design this machine. And one of the, one of the, like, it's kind of the right place, right time for this, this kind of thing. It probably will never be nothing like this will happen again in welding, but, uh, it happened kind of in the in the point where a lot of things were going from transformers and uh, to inverters, and then you had like a lot of circuitry that was being created in just that era. Uh, so one of the unique things about it was you had this hybrid machine. So it it's kind of like they took what they knew about the Miller Synchro Wave and they took what they knew about inverter technology and they kind of built this thing. And so it actually switches back and forth. But the problem with these things. Uh, my warning to anyone that wants to go quick buy one uh, is mostly comes down to the fact that the electronics in it are like very 1990s and so nearly impossible to fix and replace, right? Mm-hmm. So these things now are, they're still highly valued, which is kind of the crazy part. Like you basically know that you're sitting on a bomb, whether it's going to explode or not, but you just don't know when but you're just going to ride it until the end, right? And so <laughs> one of the great parts about them is everyone that I've met that owns one has the same mentality. It's like it's like there will be a day where you're going to flip the switch and it ain't going to work. Right? <laughs> and it's like at that point, like it's as valuable in scrap metal as it is as a welder. And so, um, but when you weld with it, it's so unique. It's, uh, I've, I've welded with, like thousands of welders probably in in the years of working in all these different shops and you know working on all these different projects and and it's one of the interesting things about it is like when you weld with aluminum it's just a different type like i don't know it's <laughs> it's it's a different flavor that you will probably rarely ever taste in, in the welding world <laughs> so it's kind of uh it's 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 a it's a good one i don't know i i'm super fortunate to actually have one uh, and yeah, so I, I'm on it till it blows. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not for sale. <laughs> the, um, like before we had inverter machines, like the dynasty, dynasty welders and all those, uh, I guess, you know, sinker waves had some control, but they didn't have quite as much. And so this was an earlier machine to have lots of dialable parameters, but then it also maybe still has yep. some that, uh, a current inverter wouldn't even have. Yeah, a lot of it has to do with the fact that, like, 
you know, basically if you're welding, you know, most, most welders all weld, uh, on the DC side exactly the same. It's really the AC waveform that's really the special part, right? So, um, when you can actually take like 60 hertz, uh, out of the wall and transform it into a different hertz, that's when you can really transform what you're doing and you get different, you know, fill rates, depth rates, widths. And, and so one of the most unique parts about it is like a sinker wave, you're kind of stuck with a, a certain size wave and that's what you're basically pulling through the machine. So you're going to get 60 hertz. So like, you know, when you learn really on, on a older TIG doing aluminum, you're kind of, you're learning the hardest way possible, mm-hmm. right? That's why it's got this reputation as being like the hardest thing you could ever weld, right? And that's <laughs> like what every, what every old dude's going to tell you, like you'll never weld anything harder than aluminum. And it's like, it's not true. Like, it, honestly, like when it all comes down to it, like stainless, in my opinion, is actually one of the hardest to weld. It's the hardest to be good at. It's hardest to like look legit. And so aluminum is easy because the cool part about it is you got all day. You're literally welding on a heat sink. So it's like <laughs> you take your, you can take as much time as you want. Right. But so these old sinker waves, they're running 60 hertz. And then, you know, with inverter technology coming out, it was kind of an era where you could bring the hertz from 60 and you could go down you could go to like two and you could go all the way to 400 and you had this ability to you know change that within milliseconds right so you could actually break up a waveform and you could put waveform on waveform and you could do you can do things that you could just never do before and a lot of that was was you know having these uh microprocessors that had the capability of making changes faster than the waves were actually coming in and so, you know, uh, adjusting waves and changing waves, like you have modified square and you have square wave and you have a uh, triangle wave and you have uh, pure sign and you have all these different waves. And these all are, you know, basically because of computers. And so that has changed welding. And now it's crazy because you have a dynasty and, you, and it's so crazy because so many people now are buying these dynasties and they're they're like, it's so amazing, like how good people can get so fast. And I'm just like, ah, oh, this is so awesome. Right? But it's also like, come on, I worked so hard to get here. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so like to have an amazing dynasty that you just flip a switch and, you know, you, you can adjust that waveform and you can do pulses and you can do all this stuff. It, it's amazing. Like it's truly like that's changed a lot of bike building in general because it's literally made that barrier to entry as well smaller. Um, there's just it's 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 amazing. It's cool. Yeah, I think it's a really exciting time to be alive for a lot of these reasons. That you know you have a lot of the things that I learned about metalwork and shop work is through the internet from you know your buddy Tom Lipton and uh, and, and other sources. And same thing with like the technology for things like CAD CAM design. Uh, you know the welding machines. So many things. Uh, the cost of the technology has gotten pretty accessible and the information has gotten pretty accessible. And so if you have the inclination to, to do those things, uh, there's a lot less standing in your way. And you're someone that I think of when I think of that sort of like the attitude of like, what if I, what if I had some crazy idea and then I actually did it? You know, like I always think of you as, as (laughs) someone who's bold enough to do these stupid things. Uh, and we're living in a time where it's, it's, a lot easier than I think it's ever been. Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, 
just being able to draw something and show someone and yeah. modify it. And like we used to have to use dad CAD back in the day. Dad CAD's <laughs> when you draw on the workbench, uh, <laughs> just like your, like your dad does. Uh, or you could use CAD, which is uh, cartoon assisted design or cardboard assisted design mm -hmm. to basically create what you wanted to someone to see. And it's like to now be able to like model in fusion and, you know, like for your tube benders is a good yep. example. Like you're able to do a motion study on it and, you know, make sure that the pivot points are in the right spot and the blocks stay in and like yep. all these other variables, you know, and it's mm -hmm. like to be able to to be able to do that is is amazing like it, it's like it's interesting because we're all kind of learning at the same rate which is like the weird part about what's happening right now with cad and cam like we're all kind of like uh, you know for like everyone tells me like oh man you're like so much further along than me and it's like not really like really like there's we're the, the updates and the new innovation is happening like every six months to like a year and a half. And so we're seeing things that like, it, it doesn't matter if you learn it right now or if I learned it, like even if I have 15 plus years of experience, it doesn't matter because you're learning it at the same rate as I am. Yeah. And, and so like one of the, one of the things right now that's happening in, in, uh, the, in the machining world that's changing everything is is being able to inspect your part on the machine while you're machining it right so yeah. you you know make a few cuts and then you can use the tool probe and the uh, the touch probe and you can go in and you can inspect it and you can say oh man i need to like make this hole bigger and then you can go back and rerun that program with a bigger size like that is mind-blowing like yeah. that if that existed like 20 years ago it would have changed everything you know already mm -hmm. then but it's changing it right now and so it's it's i feel bad for people that are in the business of probing like you know inspection probing because their business is probably hurting but you know it's time for them to change to do something else and innovate again right when money gets tight you change like so um yeah, you hope you'll see some players fade away and then you know new ones will be created in that era and so it's it's neat to see like where things are going it's just kind of a weird time right now because of of like the ability to like learn all these new things and how fast we're we're doing it all together and so that's why i tell people like just go for it like the fact that everyone has the same software too like that we're like you know fusion and solidworks and and you know all all these different cad programs they're all like you know, we're able to do everything in them, right? Like we can, we can draw everything and check it all. And it's just cool. It's a cool time. Like, I mean, fusion's like 350 bucks. Like, yeah. It's awesome. Yeah. Can't it's amazing. Beat that. Yeah. And, and you can use like a startup license or a student license for like the first quite a long time actually. So yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. So if, I mean, if you make under a hundred thousand dollars using the software, like it's free. Like, yeah. why wouldn't you take that exactly. offer? Yeah. When when did some billion dollar company tell you you got something for free? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. No, I didn't have to pay for Fusion until like this past month. I was like, okay, now I think it's <laughs> now I think it's time. Like, I'm not going to be able to get another year on the startup license. You felt guilty. 
Yeah. No, well, and it was on sale. So it's like, it's like 40% off or something. And I was like, well, if I wait yeah. until this deal is over and then I have to pay full price, I'm going to feel like a chump. Yeah. Yep. I think, I think you're also going to see a lot of new things come out too with generative design is the one thing that like is going to get people thinking in a different way. Um, at, for pe people that haven't seen it yet, it's basically you take like, you know, I've seen it on a bike stem. I've seen it on bicycle pedals and stuff like that. But basically you take the known loads. So you draw a standard pen, uh, pedal or standard bicycle stem. And then you take the known loads that you will see in its lifetime. And, and then you basically modify it to tell the computer, get rid of all the metal on this thing that basically is not needed. And it creates this like shape that is wild and wacky look i mean we're talking like it it looks like something from like bone bone structures you know mm -hmm. or spider yeah. web and you know some of it isn't machinable but you can also set the parameters to like the you know that you want to machine it and then what it does is it only knocks out the stuff that makes it machinable and yeah. so that's one of the projects i've been I, i've been working on over the like few years was uh with autodesk was to basically look at that software and say like this is really cool, but, you know, can this bicycle stem and this pedal be made, you know, with a conventional way? Like, nope, like you can't <laughs> get an end mill in there, right? With a 3D printer, it opens up that door. But, uh, yeah. you know, it, it's just, it's, you're going to see a lot more of these organic curvatures and all these weird shapes. And I'm excited about it because I think it's going to create a new line of things i mean you're seeing it with those dropouts and a few other things and so it's yeah. gonna be cool yeah the i whenever i tell anyone about generative design i i, I pull up pictures of carl bass's canoe that he made which is beautiful anyway but he has <laughs> oh, yeah. a he has a support for the seat while you're or the bench or whatever it's called in the canoe and i don't know if it's like cast bronze or what that is Something like that. They, but, they machined it on the oh, five really? axis. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Any, anyhow. And then, an, then anodized it. I yep. see. Yeah. It's gorgeous though. And it looks like, yeah, it looks like bones or like, you know, vines on, it's a very organic looking thing. It kind of, uh, it's a couple like tendrils basically that go from point to point and connect the, the bench up to the, the side of the canoe. But anyway, yeah. it's, it's really cool what you can do with it because the computer can just run like a million permutations of this and check to see which one is best. And then it's like, yep, this was the best <laughs> or yep. I don't even yeah, know how it works, and, but yeah. It's, it's sometimes a weird thing though, because, you know, as being a builder, like, and you know, a lot of the people, pretty, pretty much everyone listening kind of will have this intuition. A lot of times when they look at like stuff that it creates, cause you're like, no way. Like, no way am I going to ride that or like, no way. <laughs> and it's, you know, there's, I think you have to like take it with a grain of salt, right? Because yeah. we're looking at a lot of things differently, right? And so it's not always the right attitude to come into it with a no right off the bat, right? It's, it's that, you know, I think it's sometimes important to look at it and be like, you know what? This is pretty cool looking. Like, I don't know if I would ride it and I don't know, like, <laughs> but... But like, it's, it's good to have like an open mind to it. And so, so I think that's kind of, uh, the important thing to understand, like it's a computer, so you ain't going to offend it by telling it, it did a bad job, mm. but <laughs> it's, it's, I think, you know, one of the things where I, it's got a lot of learning to do and every day the software is getting better and it's just like self-driving cars. Like, you know, you still feel like 
it's something you want control in. And so we've given the computer a lot of control in it. But the beauty is we don't have to let the computer actually make that call. So it's neat to look at the like scope of it to see it. But, you know, there's a lot of times where I look at stuff and I'm like, no way. <laughs> I would never run that. That would break in a minute, you know, mm-hmm. but it's, it's neat to see. Yeah, well, and you imagine, you know, any new technology uh, is, is going to be kind of laughable when it's first introduced and, you know, they work the kinks out usually. <laughs> yep. Yeah, it's got some kinks to work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cool, man. Uh, I think, I mean, that's most of the questions. Is there anything that you uh, wanted to talk about that we didn't really cover? Uh, let's see. Uh, I don't know. You can think of anything. <laughs> I don't know your history perfectly. Wait, maybe, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, my, my, like my background is kind of goofy. Like basically I was building motorcycles in Minnesota with my brother and then long story short, uh, did a burnout in a house, uh, in Sturgis, my brother, my brother and I lifted the motorcycle into the house, did a burnout <laughs> inside the house, basically, wrecked everything and then you know it's like any motorhead will get you get that chain reaction when you smell uh burnt rubber and then you get excited right and you just want to break stuff right (laughs) so (laughs) it gets to this point where like everyone's like breaking things and the windows are out of the house and like people are breaking fan blades off the house like up the ceiling fan and the the tv got thrown across the room and broke uh our buddy's ribs and then (laughs) shit got crazy really quick and it just so happened that there were some people there that uh, were tied in with Discovery Channel, and they were like, well, "We need to move these guys to California. They have they like have way too much fun." So <laughs> basically, like I, you know, I moved to California, then just started doing uh, all kinds of different TV shows and building bikes for Exile Cycles. Well, that was like right out uh, of high school. Kind of a weird. Yeah, that was a weird era because it was like early 2000s and it was just kind of like everyone was like refinance refinancing their houses at before the big bust and like buying these super expensive motorcycles and like living vicariously through all these like badass people that rode motorcycles (laughs) it was i mean i don't know i like it's one of those eras that is is so unique like i don't think it will ever happen again like at that scale because now that everyone's woken up from the like mirage, they realized that it was probably like the silliest time ever. <laughs> buying a <laughs> buying like a two hundred and fifty thousand dollar motorcycle because someone told you it was worth that, it seems like a really bad deal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it was good. I mean, I don't know. So that got me from Minnesota to California and then uh basically did did that for a while, um, worked for a bunch of different companies, Roland Sands Design, uh, worked for Jesse Rook, Exile Cycles. Uh, I worked for Edelbrock for a while, just kind of made my way around the kind of the L.A. scene for a while and then moved up to uh, work at what would be Tom Lipton's company uh, at a small company that specialized in stuff for Clorox, the bleach company, mm-hmm. built a lot of automation everything basically for filling bottles uh, of anything, right? So it didn't matter if it was Hidden Valley Ranch to like (laughs) bottles of bleach, like we could fill it, we could fill it faster than anyone, right? And so we built like 
a lot of automation, a lot of crazy machines for medical research for other companies. We just built a like, I mean, that, that company was insane. It was a small company and we built some of the most complicated, amazing things I'll probably ever build in my life. And it was so weird because it was like, it was, none of it was like sexy. <laughs> it was just like <laughs> square blocks that did their job and they did it really, really well. Because all that stuff is kind of off limits to people seeing. So it's like, why would you put a fillet on something if it no one's ever going to see it, right? And yeah. so it was weird to like kind of see how to build something so practical that and with so much common sense, but like so little design and so little like uh, like aesthetic features mm-hmm. that it kind of also gave me like a, a ability to kind of see a different light that I maybe never would have seen where it was like building something so simple that it there was no way it could fail, you yeah. know? And so it was cool. I mean, that Tom built that company since the early 90s. And so um, it had an amazing foundation and it's still around today and it's still cooking out awesome stuff. I mean, we worked on the Dreamliner, the Boeing Dreamliner project. Uh, building uh, equipment to shred carbon fiber. I mean, just a a lot of amazing projects. So um, pretty cool to see that. And then I did uh, work for the Science Museum, uh, building exhibits for kids. And I worked for Elon for a long time. (laughs) Exhausting, (laughs) but very fulfilling. Um, And uh, yeah, lots of of green energy projects. Uh, A lot of um, energy is kind of one of those things that I'm super into. I, I think it has a lot of value to people. That's for sure. So if <laughs> yeah. we can figure out a good, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I think the key ingredient is to put a ton of good minds behind it and uh, come up with some cool stuff. So that's kind of where I'm at now. So <laughs> I love yeah. it. Yeah, and along the way, I mean, I always when I would follow your work and see what you were doing, you were always doing all sorts of goofy side projects. Your 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 own shop is called Monkey Like Shiny, and so you do like trophies for Red Bull competitions, and you would make all sorts oh, yeah. of wacky and whimsical things, and these sort of concept bikes. And um, uh, it, you do you do prototype machine work, sort of in your living room, right? Yeah. Yeah, living room slash kitchen. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, it, I mean, quality inspection often will happen on my kitchen table where I'm inspecting a part that will, in about forty days, be orbiting the globe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think a lot of the customers want to know that, but I think it's the it's the truth. I'm like so passionate about it, and it doesn't it shouldn't matter where you do whatever you do as long as you're the right person for the job and you love what you're doing it doesn't matter yeah cool you could do it in a porta potty <laughs> you, you could make parts in a porta potty and if they turn out quality parts that's all that matters like oh, yeah. they're parts with love and they're accurate <laughs> so <laughs> the best kind of parts yeah <laughs> absolutely cool man uh well thanks so much for being a, a guest on my show about frame building um, always, always inspired by what you're doing. And I, I think a lot of the people in the bike industry who don't already know about what you do and, and your connections, uh, would be, um, b- better to, to, to know your, your work. So I uh, wanted to get you on the show. Uh, thanks so much. Now I flip the questions on you. Oh no. <laughs> 
how long have you been doing this? What you, what made you start it? <laughs> what, wait, uh, um, the, the question is where do you get off? That's what you, yeah. That's always my <laughs> yeah, joke exactly. for like when I have a, a guest on the show is like, rather than me asking them questions about their career, I just grill them. <laughs> <laughs> who do you think you are and where do you yeah, think yeah. you came from yeah question number th- yeah 